The great outdoors is a place of enjoyment, peace, and solitude. But at times, the outdoors experience goes dark. Increasingly, outdoors lovers are encountering criminal elements, psychos, dangerous wildlife, and strange weather occurrences. Our goal is to raise awareness by equipping you with cutting-edge information and to shine light into the dark outdoors. Welcome to Dark Outdoors. This is Chester Moore. In my opinion, after much research and experience, the most dangerous places to find yourself are places that are slightly wild or open spaces near cities and suburban areas. This allows criminal elements areas to operate without being seen as much as they would in a downtown area. If you look at story after story after story of rape, abduction, murder, attack, many of them happen in parks, hiking trails, green belts, suburban forest, and the media isn't talking about that aspect of this. I will personally never forget walking upon a group of men who were using drugs and shooting guns near my vehicle on a secluded island that was literally just a stone's throw from a neighborhood across from a ship channel. I had to get out of the area because quite frankly, the mosquitoes are so bad there at night, I would rather deal with the guns than the bugs. I talked my way past them, they let me out of there. But I had to ask myself, what if I were some attractive young woman? Would I have been able to get out of that area? Well, you never know. A year later, not in the exact same spot, but in the same very island, a young girl's body was found. And in fact, that still unsolved case haunts me to this day. Did I ever come across that person out there when I was out fishing and doing wildlife photography? How many times we've been in a park on a hiking trail outside of a city, just past the city lights. When we encountered someone that maybe looked a little bit odd or was paying too much attention to us, or maybe we didn't really notice them at all, but they noticed us. It's something that we have to think about. And in 1946, no one was thinking about this, especially in Texarkana. Texarkana is a unique city, part Arkansas, part Texas. And it was just a typical East Texas, Western Arkansas place until 1946. At around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22nd, 1946, 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his 19-year-old girlfriend, Mary Jean Larry, were parked on a secluded road known as the Lover's Lane. The area was just a stone's throw from city homes, but dark enough for someone to have privacy. A few minutes later, a man emerged wearing a white cloth mask which resembled a pillowcase with eye holes cut out. He appeared at Hollister's driver's side door and shone a flashlight in the window. He savagely and viciously attacked them. They didn't die, but it began something that we know as the Moonlight Murders because on March 24th, a double murder on a lover's lane in the Texarkana area. This began a mega media sensation of the day with major newspapers and magazines covering what people didn't really know of as a serial killer at the time, just a madman on the loose, attacking people just outside the city light in secluded areas and parks where people want to get outside 
and enjoy nature, and in these cases, young lovers going to make out. These cases are still unsolved, and we know about them chiefly from a 1976 movie by Charles B. Pierce called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. I saw this movie as a kid, and it absolutely terrified me. Number one, it's a scary movie, especially for a 1976 film. But also, I live in East Texas, and Texarkana is only like four hours away, so it kind of had a hometown vibe to it. Now, this is an example of, I believe, we need to think more about and talk more about in our outdoors lifestyle. We may be prepared for a grizzly if we hike Yellowstone. We may be cautious when we're going into rattlesnake-infested brush in South Texas. But what about going out to a hiking trail in a suburban park? Or educating our teens if you go out to make out somewhere on a secluded road, someone may meet you there that you don't want to meet. These are real issues. And on this episode of Dark Outdoors, we're going to talk about those suburban stalking grounds of serial killers and other kinds of criminals. And we are going to profile some very interesting information and stories from the real town that dreaded sundown, Texarkana, and the Moonlight Murders. We have John Tennyson. He is a medical doctor and a forensic psychiatrist. And he is the first cousin once removed of Duty Tennyson, who is a suspect for the phantom killings. Welcome to Dark Outdoors. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I came across um, a, a forum that you did or participated in, I believe it was in 2014, about the phantom killings in Texarkana. And I thought it was fascinating because of your connection uh, you know, to the family of a potential suspect and also sort of the level of detail that you went into this with, which I really appreciated. And you also weren't just like pointing fingers. You were like, hey, these are, these are possible scenarios. I appreciate that. No, can you give us like a little synopsis of the phantom killings, the phantom killer and the moonlight murders here? Sure. Yeah. So basically in 1946, starting in the month of February and going through the month of uh, May, mm -hmm. there were four couples attacked. In each case, it was a man and a woman. And uh, the first couple who was attacked actually survived and lived to tell about the experience. Uh, the second couple was murdered, the, both the man and the woman, as was the third couple. And then the last couple that was attacked in May was a husband and wife. The husband was murdered. Uh, the, the wife was shot, but she survived. Mm -hmm. So it was a total of uh, four couples attacked, five of whom died, five people of whom died. And um, that happened from starting in February and then again in March and then April and then May of 1946. The one thing that has kind of stood out, and maybe you mentioned this uh, when I talked to you on the phone before, was that the title Phantom Killer was associated with this. And that kind of made it a media phenomenon, didn't it? Yes, I think that the title Phantom Killer sensationalized the killings more than might have otherwise been the case. And and certainly it wasn't the first time that the term phantom killer had appeared in media or literature, mm -hmm. but it was used by the Texarkana Gazette. And I think that did probably uh, make it more interesting uh, than it might have otherwise been. Um, but, it, you know, the, the identity of the killer or killers, whoever they might be, remains unknown to this day. Uh, the first couple that was attacked, uh, one of them described the man wearing a mask. And we see like the white mask with the eye holes cut out and... But that thing has kind of become like this icon of this. 
And um, I found something fascinating in your research that, you know, that there was actually someone you interviewed fairly recently that had never talked about this that said they actually saw someone wearing a similar mask. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. It, it has been written before and published mm-hmm. that the only couple that actually has seen anyone, the killer or identified the killer as having worn a mask. If they, of course, they didn't. They didn't get killed by that person, but that was the first couple who was attacked. Yeah. But I interviewed a woman who was five years old at the time in, in 1946, and she says that there was a man wearing a white hood over his head with eyes, with the holes cut out where the eyes were, staring at her through her window on Hickory Street in the Arkansas side where she lived, and that she went to get her mother. And through some process of her mother coming back, either either the mother, the man had already left, or the mother caused the man to go away. But um, that was the, that's the only other instance that I know of, of someone, uh, an eyewitness account of someone seeing someone with a white hood over their head in 1946 at about the same time when the killings uh, were occurring, and that's you know, the early half of that year. Now, thanks to the generosity of John Tennyson and his diligent research, we're going to hear the audio from that interview of Bonnie Plunkett Wilson sharing a very unique and historically significant testimony. It's the only other known sighting of a white hooded figure during the time of the Phantom Killings. This is a chilling testimony. Check it out. Tell tell me what you remember. Uh, It was, I was around five years old and it was dark and I remember going to the window and the shade was And as I looked out the window, there was this person looking back at me with a white thing over his face with two holes in it. And I was a young child, so I wasn't that afraid. I didn't know what it was. So I do remember that. And over the years, I thought, what could that have been? But now I think it could have been, you know, the Phantom Killer. And, and Bonnie, let me just clarify, because I want to make sure I've understood you correctly. This, you were in your house, which was on Hickory Street. On Hickory Street. And this was the, it was the east side of Hickory Street. It was the east side. Okay, and it was near the base of the Arkansas Viaduct. Right. And you were in your, a first story bedroom, or what kind of Yes, room? it was just a, it wasn't a two story. Okay, but it was a duplex, it had been divided. On the other side, a, another, a, Young lady and her two children lived on the other side. Her husband was in the army also. And to the best of your recollection, this was in 1946? 1946. And do you recall, like, if it might have been the first half of the year or the second half of the year, or what part of the year it might have been in? I don't remember it. Five, all I can remember is just seeing that okay. person outside that window. And, and tell me again, to the just repeat what you said. Tell me to the best of your recollection what you remember seeing. Just a white... Matt, white sheet or something over a man's with two eye holes looking at me. Okay, so it looked like a sheet over someone's head with two eye holes. Two eye holes Did you notice that there were any other holes, like for the mouth or nose or anything? I didn't. I, I didn't remember that. I thought, what was that? You know, I, I wasn't even afraid because I don't remember. You, I there's remember no question that. that it was a person. It was a person. Okay, it was definitely a person. Could you see the eyes? I could see somebody looking at me through the, okay. yeah. You could tell that it was a person. person. Under, yeah, under the that, sheet. there was a person there looking at me. And did it look like they had put a sheet over their head, or did it look like it was like a like a public case, like a smaller? Um, yeah, a smaller it, thing. Yeah, there. something smaller. Did you could you see, could you tell where it ended? Did it seem to end at the neck, or did it seem to be like a complete sheet? 
No, it was just the end of the neck right there. So it was just... In increasing numbers, people across North America are going missing in the wild. Dark Outdoors is committed to shining light on this topic and raising awareness when public interest in these cases fades away. In this episode's Missing in the Wild segment, we profile Kim H. Crumbo, age 74. Kim is a male and was last seen on a backcountry canoe trip in Yellowstone National Park, Wyoming, on September 12, 2021. He and his brother, both former National Park Rangers, did not return as scheduled. His brother's body was unfortunately found on the east shore of Shoshone Lake, but searchers have failed to locate Kim at all. He is presumed dead, but as we've learned at Dark Outdoors, you never know what goes on out there. Plus, even if he is deceased, the family needs some kind of closure. Kim is five foot ten and weighs 200 pounds. He has graying brown hair and blue eyes. This man is a national hero. He was a Navy SEAL. If you have any information, contact Yellowstone National Park at 307-344-2640. That's 307-344-2640. This is Chester Moore. And if you love horror, you need to go to Texas Frightmare Weekend. Texas Frightmare Weekend is a Southwest premier horror convention and film festival. Now entering its 17th year, the event will now take place May 26th to 28th, 2023 at the Irving Convention Center in Toyota Music Factory. Texas Frightmare Weekend is proud to announce the return of John Carpenter, legendary director of Halloween, The Thing, The Fog, Escape from New York, They Live, and many more. Tickets and info are available now at TexasFrightmareWeekend.com. That's TexasFrightmareWeekend.com. I wanted to get into why John Tennyson thinks his first cousin once removed is the most likely candidate for being the Phantom Killer. However, I had him look at old maps of Texarkana and we discussed how the Phantom potentially could use everything from railroad tracks to abandoned roads to do his work, which applies to now and modern day criminals. So, you know, Texarkana was a relatively small town to begin with. So it, it it wasn't hard to, to be in a relatively isolated location. Yeah. And, of course, it wasn't lit up like New York City or anything. So it, even even in the developed areas or within the city limits at night, uh, they, there were a lot of very dark areas. But mm-hmm. the first attack, if, if anyone wants to look on a modern map of Texarkana, um, was is said to have been approximately where Richmond Road and Stevenson Road crossed. And that was a much uh, on the Texas side of Texarkana. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was much, uh, you know, t- Texarkana, as, as your listeners might know, is in the Piney Woods of yep. Northeast Texas. Yep. It's a, you know, it's not just Piney Woods, it's deciduous forest, but, you know, very lush and dense woods. Um, and so this was a relatively, it was kind of suburb, suburbanish for Texarkana, but still, I'm not sure if it was in the Texarkana city limits or not, but, but certainly there was a lot of vegetation. Uh, it was not far from the what they're called the KCS or Kansas City Southern Railroad tracks, mm-hmm. um, so that was the first attack. So you know it would have it would have wouldn't have been hard for someone to hide in that area if they mm-hmm. wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the second attack that was in March of uh, 1946. Um, that was uh, that was uh, near the let's see that would have been um, let me get my my people right this that would have been out on if you take Robinson Road and go south. Um, kind of at the southern end of Robinson Road, but also not in a 
in a relatively undeveloped area at the time. So a lot of vegetation, a lot of, a lot of foliage and cover. Mm-hmm. It was also near the Texas and Pacific tracks uh, within easy walking distance. Mm-hmm. And then the April attack of 1946, that was Booker and Martin, the teenagers. Um, that, that was uh, basically their, their bodies were found slightly outside of the, the formal perimeter of the park. But generally people would, you know, in summary would say they were killed in the park. But we don't really know if they were killed in the park or at the site where their bodies were found, despite what some people claim. But the car was found on the road that runs along the eastern side of the park near the case. Once again, the Kansas City Southern tracks. And then Martin's body was found kind of north of the park. And then uh, Booker's body was found, I believe, was kind of, I guess you, you may say kind of northeast, I'm sorry, northwest rather, mm-hmm. of the park. In places like that. But obviously no one went parking to go make out with their lover thinking that they're going to die that night or get attacked that night. There was definitely an element of surprise. Right. And what's interesting sure. to me about the, uh, the element of surprise here is almost if, you know, like someone was waiting or, um, you know, almost seems like there's even a more calculated level than you might initially look at some of these cases. It could be. I mean, we, we know from the first couple who were attacked, you know, it does seem that they were out parking in, in a, you're trying to find a remote area as a couple. Yeah. Um, and it's generally assumed that that was the motivation of the second, third attack. So you know, we, we know that the, the second attack where the bodies were found um, we, and they were found on what was believed to have been a lover's lane, but, mm-hmm. but we really don't know how they ended up there. So we don't know if in theory they could have been, someone could have hijacked them in their car and made them go there. Mm-hmm. We don't know for sure. Cause we just, they were just found dead. And, and technically that's the same thing true with, I mean, Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker were on a date, but the the extent of the affection that they felt towards each other at the time of yeah. that date yeah. was unclear. Yeah. Some people said that they had dated before, but she really wasn't into him that much, and that she just as a friend went out with him that night because he was in town from out of town. Um, but we don't we don't know if they intentionally went to the park themselves. They, they could have had a similar situation where someone hijacked their car and made them drive there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in the Starks attack, you know, they were already at the. They yeah, back. they were home. Now, looking at this situation, any idea from uh, the first surviving couple how long the killer loomed around the area, how long the attacks might have taken? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I know some of the events. I mean, that supposedly occurred. You know, he, he asked the driver uh, to get out of the car and mm-hmm. and then hit him with something, and then and then ultimately chased the woman. Um, I would I would just guess. But I don't know that that all the events that were reported as being part of the attack in that first instance probably took place in under 30 minutes. Yeah. But I don't know. I I haven't thought about that before. Well, you got to think my my thought is if you're, you know, if you if you have if you're a killer and obviously you're not completely operating with a full deck, if you are, there's something wrong there. But if you're calculating and obviously this still isn't solved, um, you got to think you have to feel confident that you're not going to be getting caught during this time. And not, not, it's not like they just shot him in the head and left, took a wallet, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. There, there was some time and confidence in these particular areas they were in that they probably weren't going to have anyone interfere. Right. I, th- I think if, they had, if the killer or, or attacker had thought about that, they probably would have realized that, yeah, the r- more remote areas make the outcome for them more successful sure um in terms of you know how premeditated it, it, it they were or not yeah i mean that that's that there's some uncertainty with that because sure. 
there, there's a distinction made between disorganized versus organized killers. And mm-hmm. some of the disorganized ones almost do these things more impulsively with, without much thought. It's more like a relief of their anxiety that's built up. Gotcha. So, and so, and they might not, it might not be, so there might not be as much um, thought about um this needs to happen here. Although obviously in every case it did happen in remote situations. I think at least the attacker was intuitively aware or at least felt comfortable enough perpetrating the attack in these remote situations. But how much thought they put to it beyond that is not clear. Now from your research, I mean, we know there's a movie called the town that dreaded sundown, but how true at that time is that statement was Texarkana a town that dreaded sundown? Well, yeah, I think that title is a very fair statement. I mean, by, by the time, uh, the, the third attack rolled around where, where Booker and Martin were killed. The city was very much on edge, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much universally reported. And I don't, you know, there, some people probably felt more unsafe than others or more afraid than others. But I think it is fair to say that there were significant other numbers of people in Texarkana who were afraid of the night. And of course, they were also afraid that there might be, a, you know, every about a, it, it, an attack that occurred in February and March and April, mm-hmm. and then lo and behold, again in May. So it did occur. I don't know the exact number of weeks, but you know, the, during the, whatever that periodicity was, when that amount of time was gone by, people became more fearful. Like, okay, if there's a pattern here, it's going to happen. You know, or, or it's going to happen soon. And, and sure enough, the Starks attack occurred, which for some people was a, a confirmation of their fears mm-hmm. that, that another attack was going to occur at, at approximately that time. Pray prepare and pack heat it's time for some dark outdoors defense strategies and techniques since in this episode we're talking particularly about some lovers lane killings and people being attacked in vehicles i think we need to talk about carrying weapons in your car where it is legal you need to have an easy access weapon in your car And I have a holster that I've rigged for my car and my truck where I have a 38 double action revolver. The reason I have the double action revolver for easy access, if someone comes up like when I'm driving down some dark road real slow or parking in a remote area or something like that, I don't want to have to wonder if I have the gun ready to go. I know as soon as I put my hand on that and draw, I can squeeze that trigger and fire it. So a revolver is a great weapon to have as your easy access. Now, there are lots of different kind of options in terms of holsters. There are a lot of mountable ones. There's ones you can kind of rig up and do your own. What I've done, I actually have my console in my truck. And I have a holster that I had, and I have it Velcroed right there and stuck right to the side of that console. The really small 38 revolver, perfect for shooting just a couple of feet at somebody if necessary, right there in my vehicle. And every time I get in, I just slip that gun in there. I keep it in a case uh, under the seat when I'm not in the vehicle because I don't want someone to see it and steal it. But I always put it right back in that spot right by the console. That way I just literally have to reach over with the hand I'll be shooting with my right hand and pull it out. But I want you just to think about having defense options like that because a lot of people are hitting their vehicles, whether it's in a parking lot at a a shopping center or going out into the great outdoors somewhere, parking in a national forest area in a remote spot and a hunting location or something like that. Now, 
Also, I always carry another revolver, a much larger, a 357 with me as well. And I usually have an AR or a shotgun in my vehicle. Those are not going to do any good in a scenario where someone approaches the car window. Something else very important, right on the side of the door, a little cubby hole where you can put drinks and stuff. I have a tactical knife that's really easy to get to. That way, if something went down, I couldn't get the gun, someone got in the vehicle or something like that, I also have that option to grab that knife. Folks, we want to make sure no matter where you go, you come home to your family. Let's face it, the reason this podcast even exists is the growing dangers in the wilds from increasing human-animal conflict in bizarre weather and climatic patterns to predators of the humankind, criminal elements, psychos. And if they come up to you and try to get you out of your vehicle or take you out, I'd rather you take them out. Dark Outdoors Defense is brought to you by Hog Hunt USA, an app created to help control the hog population by helping more people kill more hogs more often. They're doing this by building a network of outfitters and landowners to provide excellent hunting opportunities at a big discount. I totally dig that. The hunts begin in January, but starting in October, you can log in to upload pictures of your hog hunts for a chance to win a night vision scope gift certificate for a hunting rifle and other hog hunting gear we'll be reporting about this here on dark outdoors and other media platforms don't forget hog hunt usa it's going to be a game changer in the hunting world now it's time for what a lot of you are probably waiting for why john tennyson took such a deep interest in looking at his first cousin once removed as a candidate for being the phantom killer you know, there has been um, controversy over who this possibly was. And of course, uh, there have been a book written and there have been people suspecting that a man named Yule Swinney, I believe he was 29 years old, uh, a car yep. thief, for sure we know that, uh, that was captured and uh, there were some confessions involving his young wife and things like that. But uh, you think that uh, your relative, H.B. Duty Tennyson, uh, is a possible suspect because of a letter that he left behind. Well, yes. That what happened with him to elaborate further is that um, it was so he had gone off to college mm-hmm. in 1948. He was a freshman at the University of Arkansas mm-hmm. uh, in the fall of 1948, and he committed suicide while in college and left behind a confession note in which he confessed to at least some of the murders. It's not entirely clear whether he was trying to confess to all five people who were killed or just three. But his his, uh, suicide note explicitly says that he killed Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker. Mm -hmm. And it also says explicitly that he killed Mr. Starks and tried to kill Mrs. Starks. Mm -hmm. But he also says, you know, why did I take my life? You would, too, if you had committed two two double murders, Mm -hmm. which implies responsibility for the other uh, couple who died, too. Um, But one thing I've done is, is to do comparative uh, analysis of the evidence for Yule Swinney as compared to the evidence relating to H.B. Duty Tennyson. Mm-hmm. And I'm always very careful to, to, to describe it in a nuanced way, and that is to say that if I were only comparing just those two individuals, mm-hmm. I believe the evidence for H.B. Duty Tennyson is more compelling than that for than Yule Swinney. Yes. However, it's entirely possible there's a third individual we don't even know about. Who, who, for which there might be even more compelling evidence, but there are, there are a lot, and it's not just the note. I mean, it, 
it is with regard to the note there are there were a lot of misconceptions that got uh, perpetuated in the newspapers and including the Texarkana Gazette um, so for example there was a headline saying that a note canceling the the murder confession had been found and mm-hmm. actually duty Tinson never wrote a note in which he canceled the confession he wrote a note saying describing a reason he took his life but he never he never denied uh, the confession of murder and in the case of the the uh, girlfriend and later wife of Yule Swinney she did recant her confession. So mm-hmm. we have a case where, you know, she, she basically wrote a note during, to, to her parents while she was being interrogated saying that, you know, that they, they won't take no for an answer and that yeah. she basically indicated that they were trying to get her to say that Yules when he did it and that her note indicated essentially that he didn't do it. Um, so we don't really, you know, it's often, there's often a comparison made between uh, circumstantial evidence and direct evidence. And, um, it's, it's erroneously said that there's no direct evidence, but we do have direct evidence. By definition, what direct evidence is, is when someone says they witnessed something mm-hmm. personally, that's direct evidence. And if I say, well, I saw someone holding a smoking gun, so maybe they did it, that's circumstantial evidence. But we do have this note in which H.B. Tennyson says he did it, so he would have been a witness for what he claims to have done. So that is, you know, in that sense, that does satisfy the definition of direct evidence. It doesn't mean he's telling the truth, but interestingly, um, there's, I, I consulted a, a gentleman named Ron Maris, who's a PhD and considered the world's foremost expert in suicidology and suicide notes. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, had, do you know of any instance where anyone has ever committed suicide and left behind a note in which they make a false confession of murder? Mm-hmm. He said, no, that's it, interesting. I, yeah. He's never seen it. So I mean, if, if HB's confession or if his suicide note was false, mm-hmm. um, that he would be the first person in known human history to ever taken his life and, and left behind a note making a false confession. That's, Theoretically possible, but but unprecedented as far as this expert knew. That's fascinating. Now, obviously, you have the family connection, the roots in the Texarkana area, but what made you want to take this deeper dive into looking at duty? Well, yeah, what happened is when, when the movie came out in the 70s, I, I was born in 1968, so the uh-huh. movie came out in 1976, so I was like eight years old, and yeah. I did end up seeing the movie. It's a pretty benign R rating. It wasn't that you know graphic of a movie, really, by today's standards. Um, so I, I did see it in the 70s, and I heard about the idea that I, that I had this cousin mm-hmm. who had confessed to some of the murders or to having been the Phantom Killer. He actually didn't call himself the Phantom Killer, but um, he was regarded as such. But there was this idea floating around in the 70s that he had been ruled out. But I was never told how he was ruled out. Okay. Um, but I just assumed, well, I guess he's been ruled out. But when I was in medical school in California, the the World Wide Web was getting more user-friendly. Sure. And I came across some transcriptions of some of the suicide notes that he'd written. And I and I said, that's interesting. So here's, here's a, in the note with the confession and what was found. And I started to say, well, I wonder how he got ruled out. It's, just not, it's not clear to me still. So the more I looked at it... Um, I couldn't find any evidence of how he had been ruled out. And, and actually, the, the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety, Homer Garrison, who was a, he was head above the Texas Rangers and the whole DPS mm-hmm. in the state of Texas, he said at the culmination of the investigation of duty after, after duty committed suicide that he had not been completely ruled out. Mm-hmm. So he never was ruled out. But somehow what had happened is that local authorities in Texarkana had already put away Yule Swinney with the idea that he likely was the one. And at the very least, it would have been inconvenient with, if someone else came forth and, and said they were the one. But so, and when H.B. Tennyson committed suicide, that that uh, actually caused a whole new round of checking fingerprints. I think there were an additional 
something like 12,000 fingerprints that got checked even after his suicide, which certainly doesn't imply of, the, of a high degree of confidence that Ewell Swinney uh, was the killer. Yeah. So um, it, it's, it's really quite interesting, but um, it, as far as H.B. Uh, um, Tennyson and his in uh, the, the idea that he could have done it, there's, there's really no, there, there's nothing that was done that really ruled him out. There really wasn't much with the technology they had at the time that could have, because um, he was already dead and he claimed to have disposed of the murder weapons. And so there was, there were a lot of, you know, kind of character witness coming forward saying, Oh, I don't think he did it and family members and other friends, mm-hmm. but none of whom were really experts. Something interesting here, just looking at him as a candidate is his age. He was very, very young. How young would he have been during the killings? Yeah, he would have been 16 years old. Uh-huh. Uh, it would have been during his sophomore year of high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's certainly the case. I mean, a lot of a lot of serial killers, you know, start killing in their teens. And in fact, interestingly, one, one irony is that there was a book written by James Presley about the Phantom Killer in which he tried to build a case for Yule Swinney. And I, I don't agree with his reasoning, but mm-hmm. he actually uh, cites a psychiatric expert to help build his case. But it turns out, if you look at the research of that that psychiatrist, that psychiatrist is actually an expert in teenage serial killers. Oh wow! And or te- teenage murder. That that's mm-hmm. actually his, his research is based on people who are teenagers who murder. So it was an ironic choice because it really built a case, or I would say at least it it, it allowed for the the possibility that yes, there are teenagers who who commit murder. But but yes, indeed, it would be young, and and I think that's if he if he was responsible for any of the murders. Uh, his age probably did contribute to him being less likely to be on the radar of the authorities. Yeah, like an advantage that people probably wouldn't think a teenager who was working at the cinema at the time, that kind of guy, might be the one to that's do right. this. Yeah. Yes. And that's interesting to me just because we're going to st- go somewhere else here in a minute, but I want to kind of establish um, you know, this whole idea about the Phantom Killer, the unsolved nature of this. I think more people have heard of the Yule Swinney theory, and this is something I wanted to put out there. It's very, very interesting. But on this idea of H.B. Uh, Tennyson doing this, you had something uh, in the ebook that you have published, and it's like a little chart, and it mentions the connections between him and some of the other people, some of the, the people that were killed and attacked. And you actually quoted, I believe, in your presentation in 2014 from Silence of the Lambs. We talk about you covet what you see every day. And to me, that was sure. a very interesting connection. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, the, the, the general gist of the, the case I make, and this is another angle of analysis in addition to you know mm-hmm. the, the probability of a suicide note being true or not, mm-hmm. is that H.B. Tennyson had um, what appears to be a significantly greater than average opportunity to be near uh, individuals who were attacked. Yeah. So, so if you if you look at um, I mean if you kind of uh, go back and look at the uh, before before attacks the first attack the he worked as an usher at the Paramount Theater mm-hmm. in Texarkana mm-hmm. and um, uh, essentially um, four there there were. Uh, of the three couples, um, at least one, two of the couples had gone to see a movie. Actually, let, let me go one at a time. The first couple that got attacked had gone to see a movie at the Paramount Theater the night of their attack. Mm-hmm. And uh, also the second couple uh, had also gone to see a movie at the Paramount Theater the night they were attacked. In the case of the third couple, um, Paul Martin, who was the boy who got killed, he was at the theater. Um, and then later he went to the dance where, where Betty Jo Booker was playing saxophone. She, Betty Jo Booker was not at the theater, but Paul Martin had been at the Paramount Theater earlier that night. Mm-hmm. 
So you basically have, you know, at least the, the first two couples both were at the Paramount Theater. Paul Martin was there. Um, and then, so, so that's, that's one time there is that Paramount Theater, you know, kind of note of proximity. Um, if you also look at the second couple, uh, uh, Mr. Mr. Griffin, um, he lived at this, they had this area called the Robinson Courts. Mm-hmm. He lived at the, which was an area of a kind of low, low income housing um, out on Robinson Road. And H.B. Uh, Tennyson would go out there and babysit his sister's uh, either child or children. I don't know if she had two at that time. She had at least one child. And uh, Moore, uh, Griffin lived out there, um, and presumably Polly and Moore would have been you know, visiting him on occasion. So that was a potential area of proximity. Um, and then with regard to the third couple, H.B. Um, Tennyson had gone to school. So H.B. Tennyson, he knew Betty Jo Booker from band and had been uh, in uh, some – he had been in some, dra- some dramatic or plays – during junior high school and she was also in a, a play in junior high school and, and um, she was in the grade ahead of him, but they were at the junior high uh, before she transferred to the Texas high. So he, he definitely knew her and, and almost certainly would have known Paul Martin as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with regard to the last couple, the Starks family, they were, it's a little more proximal to where Judy lived in this case. They actually were the, the Mr. Starks and his wife, um, it was, it was an interesting thing. There were two sisters, and Mr. Starks, Charles Starks, had, had, had um, uh, married one of them, and uh, that was the brother. And then Virgil Starks, who was murdered, had married the other sister. So they would spend a lot of time at this house that was just a few houses down from where H.B. Tennyson lived on Hickory Street. And um, that was there was also a, a friend of H.B. who lived right next door to them named James Freeman, who became a person of interest in my inquiry. Um, but so you have that that proximity there, you know, just the fact that they they were there, you know, every weekend and possibly during the weekdays. Uh, that is just like Virgil and Katie were. Um, so that, and that was um, another area area where they were near HB's house. You know, you so mean, those are some. Oh, go, go ahead. No, I'm just going to say that uh, the idea that they that they were like, you know, for example, in, in the same band, uh, they would see each other. They would definitely be familiar go, working at the same uh, you know, working at a cinema they attended, those kind of things makes it real interesting in terms of uh, placing this guy there. And obviously the confession, that's, those are just some of the things that when, when I heard this, I was like, oh, that's that's interesting because I'd never heard. I'd heard of H.B. Tennyson, uh, but I'd never heard this level of research on it. Oh, he, he actually was the most, because of the suicide in 1948, he was the most highly publicized suspect. Uh, prior to 1971, prior to 1971, the name Yule Swinney was not really known publicly, hmm. and that's it was really after James Presley started publishing articles in the Texarkana Gazette that the name Yule Swinney became known. But prior to that time, the only, the only you know they were they were protective of people's identities who were suspects because sure. they didn't they didn't want to incriminate an innocent person. Yeah. Um, but in, in H. B. Tennyson's case, he he incriminated himself, so he was he was the most well known suspect up through 1971. Yeah, that's really interesting looking at that from that uh, that perspective because, uh, you know, uh, what people publish or don't publish can make a, be a uh, make make a gigantic difference in public perception. You know, you kind of especially sure. back in the day when newspapers were like the record. It's like you know this is what you do. Newspapers were often called the record. We had a local newspaper. You know, this is what's happening, and you know, kind of believe yeah. that media outlet. And so, looking at alternatives on this stuff uh, is very fascinating. But this may be, and I don't know. I'm not a serial killer expert, but um, this has to be one of the very early, at least, ideas of a lovers' lane type murderer. Uh, 
because several of these happen in areas where couples are out parking or that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it certainly in terms of an actual case, it, it, it became very much identified with, uh, you know, lover's lane murders. And, and that idea of a, of a murder of a couple who was on a lover's lane, um, that idea was in detective comics and or detective uh, magazines at the time. It, hmm. That that idea was in the, the literature. But I think this was probably the most highly publicized true case of that kind of thing happening. Having John Tennyson on, it was a great interview, and uh, his theories are very, very interesting, although this certainly remains an unsolved case. And the reason that we know about these cases nowadays really is the seminal 1976 Charles B. Pierce film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. You know, he was a director of The Legend of Boggy Creek that became a sensation broke records as far as independent filmmaking and that kind of thing. And the town that dreaded sundown really was a template for many horror movies to come, but it came from a true horror story. Mr. Pierce passed away years ago, but I had the incredible honor and privilege of interviewing his daughter, Pamela Pierce Barcelo, and she talks about the making of and the history of and living with being the daughter of the man who created The Town That Dreaded Sundown. If you're a fan of the movie like me, if you're interested in this case, you're going to love how we finish this program out. It's such an honor and privilege to have our next guest on. Her name is Pamela Pierce Barcelo, and you probably noticed that Pierce part. If you're anything into horror and monster movies, of course, her father was Charles B. Pierce, the highly impactful, influential director of the Legend of Boggy Creek, The Bootleggers, The Evictors, and the film that we're going to talk about here, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Welcome to Dark Outdoors. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You know, I was so happy that uh, our mutual friend Lyle Blackburn could connect us because I know you've heard this a thousand times, particularly with Boggy Creek, but your father's filmmaking and approach to filmmaking had a gigantic influence on my life. That's what I hear, yeah. He, somebody uh, referred to him recently as an early icon of horror, and uh, that was a, a new one for me. But if you reflect upon it, it's, you know, he did have a lot of influence in, in several genres. He really did. And what I, you know, I'm a wildlife journalist by trade. I make my living writing about wildlife, fishing, and hunting. And I could look at the legend of Boggy Creek just in the filmography and the way they capture the essence of the southern bottomlands and be excited about that part, much less the Falk Monster stuff. And so uh, that got me hooked. And then I remember when I first got VHS, when that was like a big thing in the early 80s, I went to a little video club. They had like maybe 100 VHSs in their whole place. And um, I pick up this this box there were big vhs boxes and it had a guy in a white hood on the front it said the town that dreaded sundown and it said charles b pierce i'm like hey that's the dude from the legend of boggy creek and <laughs> i remember picking that up and taking it home and watching it and could not sleep for like three nights <laughs> it scared me you know to death and of course, that is a, now. Uh, I've heard you refer to Boggy Creek as kind of like a docudrama. Um, you know, it's it seems to me like Town the Dreaded Sundown, which is based on a true story, is very similar, but maybe have more like of a of a storyline going on than Legend of Boggy Creek does. 
he took a few liberties with the town that dreaded Sundown. Yeah. So when yeah. the legend of Boggy Creek was released in 1972, which actually today is the 50th anniversary of its release. Oh, wow. So that's kind of a, it just happened to be, but wow. it was released as a documentary. It pioneers the docudrama yep. style that mm-hmm. we know so well, but if you look at it uh, as it was released, it was the it is the third highest grossing documentary of all time. That's and that's only with those theatrical numbers from 72 to 75. We've never been able, to, of course, to count the years of bootleg. Sure. So that's never been counted. But uh, I hope to make it soon the number one docu, you know, documentary, docudrama. Uh, and so when he, uh, you know, everybody wanted him to follow that movie up, of course, with another Boggy Creek. Yeah. Or as he had, he was from, he grew up in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So he was familiar with these stories. And the town that tried to send truly did grip the entire Absolutely. area in fear. And so, you know, he, he had that in the back of his mind mm-hmm. early on that, you know, once Boggy Creek was successful, that he wanted to follow that up with Dreaded Sundown. And so um, there was a lot of opposition, as you could imagine. The killer was never captured. But in that, in the town that dreaded sundown, I mean, your dad had the best titles, by the way. Legend of yeah, Bobby Creek, yeah, town that yeah. dreaded sundown. I mean, really cool, yeah, iconic yeah. things. But that's the one thing he seemed to nail with that from the beginning was it literally gripped a community in fear. And he put that pretty quickly in the movie. So, and I think that to capture when you think of the legend of Boggy Creek, it's very atmospheric as mm-hmm as then Dreaded Sundown becomes. And he tries to really convey that on the screen. And the people were really afraid and they really were, you know, putting covers over the windows and buying, Mm -hmm. you know, guns and all of that stuff. So um, it gripped at everybody. Uh, There's a book from Harry Thomason who grew up next to my dad Mm -hmm. in Hampton, Arkansas. And he later becomes the, producer, director of Designing Women that was on CBS yeah, with Dr. Burke. Yeah, Dixie and Dixie Carter and all them, yeah. Yeah, and Evening Shade. He has written a really good book called Brother Dog, and there's a few chapters that deal with my dad, and one of the first chapters, they start out, they're talking about Dreaded Sundown, and, and they're kids, and, and my dad's scaring Harry with this. You know, he's telling him the story, and Harry says, now, that's a long way away. He said, no, that's in Texarkana, Arkansas, you know? And it was like, yeah, they're making me think it, but that's just what they're in Arkansas. So he's scaring Harry. I mean, it was scary enough, okay, but then here's my dad. And then Harry said that he was terrified all of a sudden, because my dad's giving him these details and whatever, and then... Later on, of course, uh, my dad calls him and says, "Hey, I'm making this, new, you know." So he so so he makes the movie on it. But so my dad knew the good subject matters, you know. And yeah. I mean, I wanted for a trivia: uh, the the Legend of Boggy Creek was originally titled "Trekking the Falk Monster," huh. and uh, "Dreaded Sundown" was "Phantom Killer." 
Phantom Killer. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, he definitely yeah. chose the right ones in the end. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. I yeah. believe so. Yeah. You know, the, the, of course, that was what the uh, unknown killer uh, the was called, the Phantom Killer. And that name probably even in that day back in newspapers and magazines, the Phantom Killer probably made that grow into even more of a national phenomenon, you know. But one of the, sure. in terms of the movie itself, the thing that, you know, other than the atmosphere, which is incredible, is the killer itself, a guy named Bud Davis. Uh, Bud Davis. A stunt, yeah. a stunt coordinator who later on I yeah. found out did like, like you know, Forrest Gump and stuff. Uh, yeah, isn't that crazy? That's wild. Now, I'm a uh -huh. horror movie connoisseur, and I've watched mm -hmm. everything that probably ever had a masked killer in it, and Bud Davis made the most frightening killer, in, without speaking, I mean, not talking like Hannibal Lecter or somebody, but like, a silent killer that I just with his body and his eyes and the way he breathed. I mean, to me, it was yeah. absolutely terrifying. Yeah. So that again is uh, while my dad is, I believe somebody told me Leatherface might have been right before that, but yeah. he's one of the very, very first to use the mask over the face for yep. the killer. Yep. And the Phantom Killer or the Moonlight Madness Killer, whatever you want to call him actually wore mm -hmm. a pillowcase over his head. And there was a survivor, I think the first yep. attack, the girl survived. Mm -hmm. And so she recounts this. And so when my dad goes to make the movie, as he had done with Dreaded Sundown, he went with what the eyewitnesses had told him. And then he tried to just recreate that. Yep. And so that's where that hood comes from. And so uh, for him to cut out the eyes and then, they would say that they could see him breathing. And I remember when the film was being made, my dad would, he, my dad was just so animated and he would give these, he would describe the scenes and he would say, you know, okay, we're going to have the scene and this. And he would act it out and he would have, he would put his hand in front of his mouth and he'd say, and the killer's breathing real hard through the mask and the mask is going in and out and in and out. Wow. And it created this, just with him telling that, you could see later on, it is Ralph McQuarrie who did the poster for it. Star Wars. Uh, work, <laughs> yeah, working for George Lucas that suggested George Lucas that Darth Vader have the scuba apparatus with the raspy. Oh, yeah. And I think maybe just in the back recesses of his mind, the Phantom Killer came through because that is a scary you know, you can tell a lot by somebody breathing, yeah, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a little bit of movie trivia no, there, too. <laughs> that's amazing because last night I texted a buddy of mine I know who liked the movie a lot growing up, and he was freaking out that I was interviewing you. And the first two things he said were the trombone scene and the breathing with the mask coming into the mouth, that part. He's, but, um, you know, one of the things is, like, if you, like, your father's in this movie, uh, he plays the deputy, who's always in trouble. Sure. And spark plug. Yeah, uh, spark plug. Can't forget spark plug. And, right. uh, and if you took those scenes out, you would have just a straight, brutal horror movie. Was that kind of your dad's way of balancing it out a little bit and giving a little bit of levity? Yeah, he was trying to give a little bit of comic relief because it really is an intense subject, and especially since it's based on real life. He just threw that in there and 
you know, you can see the influences. For somebody that grew up, my father loves films, and he yeah. spent a lot of time watching films growing up. And mm-hmm. so you can see hints of some, like, at Hot there with Tony Curtis and yes, then putting can. on the... Yeah, yeah. And you can see, I don't know if you've seen Mayberry RFD, but mm-hmm. there's some Barney Spice there, who my dad loved, Barney Five. Yep. <laughs> you know? So uh, he would, you know... He knew what was like again, like what was the popular subject matters. I think, and was able to tell them in a in a way, just like the boy next door, and and just like he's just telling the story, and it and it's relatable. Uh, now the trombone scene is that's an addition, and I was just reading recently that somebody thinks that that had a lot to do with Sam Arkoff that he would push, 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 and wanted more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of more violence and all that stuff. So my dad had also, this is gross and weird, but he would read those uh, true detective books and yep. stuff beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't know what was picked up, but it was interesting. Uh, I was just talking about this the other day. The woman that plays the victim there mm-hmm. is uh, that dad with the trombone was actually his girlfriend. Oh, wow. So, I don't know what that was actually supposed to mean, but that was his girlfriend that he was murdering in that thing. Well, that's a way to treat uh, your girlfriend. Jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my mom my mom actually kind of appreciated it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> my mother did not mind that that was the part that she was playing. That, anyway, but he was, and about Bud Davis, I think that Bud was a very wise choice because that was a very physical role mm-hmm. that really did require a stunt man. Yeah. And so uh, I think that that was well played. And to later, to, Bud did quite a few movies with my dad and uh, later on to see that he had gone on uh, to work. I think he was the head stunt coordinator for Forrest Gump and not that, that there's lots of stunts in Forrest Gump, but it's, you know, a first rate movie. So that's, I think he's in Mexico now. I've tried to get in touch with him, but uh, I haven't been successful yet. That's my holy grail autograph. (laughs) Oh, you know what? I do have. I have. I'll post it. I'll post it on social media. I'll send you a picture of it. I have a crew shirt Uh that came to me from uh, Barbara Pryor, who was our former first lady in Arkansas. She, that's David Pryor, senator and governor, Pryor's wife, and, and Mark Pryor's mother. Mm-hmm. And she worked as the script supervisor mm-hmm. for Dreaded Sundown while she was first lady. Wow. And that crew and the cast got together, and my dad had ordered shirts for everybody to wear during filming and stuff, and so they had gotten together, and they all signed a shirt for her and Bud signed it and he used uh, like an ice pick there's like a maybe it's a knife I'll go look but anyway somebody embroidered it then if you can believe that wow yeah so I'm going to take a picture of it and show it to you because it's really kind of extraordinary so I do have his autograph (laughs) on a shirt that's that's the holy grail for me right that's cool yeah on a shirt yeah with embroidery 
I think there might be some red embroidery representing the blood. I'm gonna, I'm gonna when we wow. hang up, I'm gonna go look. There yeah. are gonna be fans listening to this, going, "Oh my god, this is gonna be freaking out over that." But uh, you know, <laughs> we should make some reproduction. Yeah, for sure. You know, the thing about that is, like, um, this this podcast is dedicated to raising awareness to dangerous situations hunters, fishermen, hikers, campers, backpackers find themselves in this particular episode, which is about suburban areas parks and places like that to let people know to be safe but also to keep your and to use a famous case and a famous movie to make people think you know let's be careful and i have my own town that dreaded sundown being careful story um back when me and my wife were first dating and she was my girlfriend we decided to go parking somewhere and um i, I was really smart i thought i had a spot no one could find us right so we literally pulled to the spot turned the car off Unbuckle my seat, but I literally like first kiss on her. Somebody knocks at the window. And in my mind, I kid you not, I'm going, there's going to be a guy in a white hood. There's going <laughs> to be. <Yeah. laughs> the movie uh-huh. literally came into my mind. And I turned around and it was a cop who had been like staked out at this spot. He goes, you young people might want to go talk somewhere else. And we just went back to my mm-hmm. house and got home and got away from everything because I was nerved up. But uh, yeah. that movie had such an impact, it made me even think, like, oh, my God, the Phantom Killer 50 years later is after me, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I do think that when that was going on, the real, you know, people stopped parking. And, and of course, then all those years later, as Charles B. Pierce's daughter, you never go parking if <laughs> no. your dad makes movies like that. You no, know, that no. just goes to the territory. My husband was from Buffalo, New York, and he didn't know that. And you know what? He tried to pull over, and I was like, I, I'm just not comfortable. This is just not comfortable. My dad made a horror family fifth and didn't even like, get it. And, and you know what? Somebody did the same thing. Somebody pulled in. It wasn't a policeman, but they, and I was like, see, let's yep. go. You know, but anyway. Uh, so it changes your outlook. Now, here's how much it changes it all these years later. So. We have a 20 year old daughter, and she just she went to Arcadia National Park over the weekend, mm-hmm. Maine, and she was rock climbing sheer cliffs and, and camping out in the woods, you know, mm-hmm. with two other girls. And I was like, and she didn't really, I didn't think that she made, you know, that there was adequate planning. It was kind of a spur of the moment. And mm-hmm. my first thing is, you know, you and I talked about just for a second the other day that yep. that the stanger would have with Yosemite or the Girl Scout murders, yep. at, you know, in yep. Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Or I, I mean, I think about those kind of things. I That's think it. about the Phantom Killer. Yep. So she's mad at me because she says that I am. She just is not going to live in fear, and you know, but. Here's the thing. I mean, Ted Bundy was taking people at a festival, okay, that hundreds of people were attending. The thing is, uh, there are predators out there, real live predators, and they're Mm -hmm. just like other predators. They are just waiting to look for the missing link, you know? Now, just to touch a little bit on the original source material here, of course, is some unfortunate, terrible unsolved murders, some monster out there committed. My dad believed it was Jules Sweeney. Now, I don't know if he believed that because that's what law enforcement told him and sure. he believed law enforcement. Yeah. Or, But he early on uh, showed me a photograph, a mm-hmm. mugshot of mm-hmm. Sweeney that he carried in his wallet all the time, pretty much as long as, you know, 
I wasn't there when he was, you know, he had dementia and stuff at the yeah. end. So I, I don't know that he had Yul Swinney's picture then, but, you know, when he was well and going around and active, he carried it in his wallet. And, you know, Yul Swinney was actually sent to prison on another charge yeah. of cause death. That's how yeah, they got, kind of locked him up on that thing because they thought he was probably sure the did. guy and they had those, like, um, yeah. they had that three strikes and you're out thing in Texas. But he did get out, yep. and it was when he was out, I think that, you know, so they said, here, take this picture, and this could be the person. So my dad, my dad stated it almost, in fact, and uh, that it was your Sweeney. And then, now we've actually been working on, um, I'm working on a, a, a series, Phantom Killers, mm-hmm. Beyond the Moonlight Madness, because there's actually quite a few unsolved uh, murders in Texarkana. So several phantoms are lurking about. Um, you know, yeah. in my opinion, as someone who is um, a wildlife outdoors lover and, and grew up a horror movie fan, I mean, the impact of this was really huge. I mean, the, the Michael Myers character from Halloween, it, although it was a rubber <laughs> mask, was a white face, you know, white kind of, you know, just faceless almost mask. The Jason, the first Jason in Friday the 13th Part 2 had a sack on his head, very much like Mm -hmm. the Phantom in the movie. But I think the bigger part of this, and I think maybe the silver lining, is the fact that this movie kept these unsolved cases out in the public view. And maybe one day someone will have that one little nugget out there that can finally solve Mm -hmm. these cases, and the movie... Uh, certainly uh, is the reason the modern generation knows of the Moonlight Murders. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a scary story, you know. I mean, um, to have somebody, that was in the beginning of serial killers. Nobody really in America, they hadn't had serial killers like that. And then you have a little bitty town, and everybody's coming home from war, and mm-hmm. it's supposed to be t- celebratory, but everything's new and coming back to life. And so, yeah, it's it's a bit chilling. Yeah, it's a bit chilling, and definitely left a mark on me. And uh, we appreciate you taking some time to talk about your father's great films, and especially uh, in this case. The chilling, scary, and still holds up today town that dreaded sundown. I um I hadn't seen it in a number of years, and probably about twelve or thirteen years ago, late one night I'm flipping channels and it was on the independent film channel. And mm-hmm. and it was like, you know, the really good transfer of it and all that. And I got right on the scene as the the Don Wells like toward the end of the movie. And mm-hmm. I'm like, man, this is one effective, scary movie. Another great work of Charles B. Pierce. And uh, Pamela, is there any way, I know you guys have put out the, the great versions of The Legend of Boggy Creek and all this. Where can people connect with the things that you guys are putting out and connect with you maybe online? So um, I have a website mm-hmm. that we're selling the restored and remastered The Legend of Boggy Creek, mm-hmm. restoring that cinematography that everyone so raved about in its initial run. So mm-hmm. that's all back. And it's on the website, www.legendofoggycreek.com. And I also have social media, uh, Legend of Boggy Creek. On Facebook, I post, I end up usually posting most on Facebook, but I also have a YouTube uh, channel, Boggy Creek. And there you can see there's some outtakes there. We are working on uh, bonus material that we'll be releasing, and we have real big news coming up. This is Chester Moore, 
editor-in-chief of Texas Fishing Game, the oldest and largest outdoor magazine in Texas, and its sister website, fishgame.com. Between these two award-winning outlets, we cover everything outdoors in Texas and beyond. While we provide you with plenty of hook-and-bullet how-to information, we have committed to our resources to bringing you the most comprehensive coverage of wildlife, habitat, and environmental issues that we can. You can get this award-winning coverage by subscribing to the Texas Fishing Game Print Edition, six issues a year, by calling 800-725-1134. That's 800-725-1134. Or going online to fishgame.com. You can also sign up for our three times per week e-newsletter to stay current on everything affecting fishing, hunting, camping, shooting, and enjoying the glorious great outdoors. We hope you've enjoyed the program. If you would like a special PDF of our dark outdoor survival tips, email chester at chestermore.com. That's chester at chestermore.com. Connect with our blog at darkoutdoors.com and also see exclusive video content. Remember, before you enter the great outdoors, pray, prepare, and pack heat.